Well, New Orleans Fire Chief Tim McConnell has called in the nation's leading demolition pros. This guy took down uh, Oklahoma City Murrow Building. Other folks took down the buildings around the World Trade Center. These guys are the ones that did that. The goal is to bring down the tower cranes away from the areas where the bodies of two workers are presumed to lie. Jim Ryan, ABC News. A 222-year-old ship has been sailing around Boston Harbor, Old Ironsides, the USS Constitution, marking its birthday today. It's also the anniversary of the U.S. Navy, established 244 years ago. This is ABC News. There are nearly 2 billion websites in the world. But there's only one that matters to the federal IT community. Welcome to AskTheCIO.com, the longest-running program on federal IT, featuring Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller. AskTheCIO.com, exclusive CIO and IT decision-maker interviews, breaking news, on-demand and updated daily. Sign up at AskTheCIO.com and become an insider with full access to federal IT news, special events, and actionable intel. AskTheCIO.com. This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. This is Friday, October 18th, 2019, and I am Natalia Castro from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. We have a really good show for you guys today. A few weeks ago, my colleague Jason introduced you guys to the private sector perspective on cybersecurity. And this week, we have a roundtable of government officials keying us into how their agencies protect us from cyber attacks all across the country. Uh, first, let me start by introducing you guys to Brigadier General Jeffrey Burkett. General Burkett is Vice Director of Domestic Operations at the National Guard Bureau. Good morning, General Burkett, and thanks for being here. Good morning, Natalia. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Next, we have Brigadier General Adam Flash. General Flash is the Director of Joint Staff for the Maryland National Guard. General Flash, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us as well. It's a pleasure to talk with you this morning. And then we also have Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Durrell with us from the Louisiana National Guard. Lieutenant Colonel Durrell serves as Deputy J-6 and Chief Information Officer in Louisiana. Thanks for being here with us, Lieutenant Colonel Durrell. Joining us from the Texas National Guard is Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Winnick. Lieutenant Colonel Winnick serves as Deputy J-6 and Cyber Operations Chief uh, in Texas. Welcome aboard, Lieutenant Colonel Winnick. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. 
And then finally, in studio with us, we have Michael D'Ambroso. Sir D'Ambroso serves as Assistant Director of the Office of Investigations with the U.S. Secret Service. Mr. D'Ambroso, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. No, thank you very much. So before we dive in, I want to remind everyone that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners, LLC. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. To learn more about them, visit ltcfeds.com today. So I wanted to start by giving everyone a chance to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit more about what they do um, and what the role that their office plays in uh, cybersecurity. So first, I'm going to start with General Burkett. Uh, If you want to talk to us a little bit about the National Guard Bureau. Sure, love to. And again, thanks for having us uh, on Fed Talk this morning. We really appreciate the opportunity to explain what our role is here at the National Guard Bureau. So the National Guard is in every state and territory, um, and we essentially have about 450,000 airmen and soldiers across the United States that serve really a dual-purpose mission. One is to uh, support the president in times of war where we can mobilize and uh, and fill in the the forces uh, that that are going to be required for combat. The second role, and, and really pertinent to this conversation, is the role we play and supporting our states and territories uh, underneath the command and control of our governors. And, and in that role, uh, cyber, is, as you know, has become more of a forefront issue, uh, especially in, in light of the last election cycle and, and, what, our, and what the adversaries are, are doing with cyber attacks on the United States. So here at the National Guard Bureau, we basically help uh, manage, train, equip, uh, and organize the states and territories to be successful in their warfight missions which then can also lend themselves to domestic missions such as responding to hurricanes or disasters or cyber attacks on our school systems, for example. So that's just a preview of kind of what we do here at the National Guard Bureau. Thanks so much for that, General Burkett. I think that's really interesting. You're going to hit on, you just hit on a lot of the points that we're going to discuss later in the show. And one of the most important ones there is how you connect with uh, states to ensure that they're prepared for any issues that come across. Uh, General Flash, if you could talk a little bit about uh, what the role Maryland plays and why the Maryland National Guard has made cybersecurity a forefront issue. So good morning. Um, so as uh, discussed previously, we're the uh, we're the local first uh, capability that the governor goes to for uh, domestic response within the military. So the National Guard. Uh, is, is uh, typically uh, works under an emergency management agency of some sort. Um, as always, we uh, are not the ones in charge. We are the ones in a support role. And, and in the cyber domain especially, we work with uh, in Maryland with a lot of other state agencies um, to help advise and assist um, and use that same uh, experience and training in cyber operations that we would do uh, in our response to a uh, um, deployment or one called on by the president, that same skill set can be used then to support our governors um, in any number of roles. Um, specifically, Maryland uh, works in, uh, in closely with our State Board of Elections to assist, uh, to advise and assist them as they uh, ensure a free and fair election. So that's just one example of something we do specifically in the uh, cyber domain. 
Thanks so much for that. And I want to now, you know, we have Maryland. We also have Lieutenant Colonel Winnick uh, joining us from the Texas National Guard. What kind of, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Winnick, what kind of unique perspective do you think Texas brings to the table in these conversations? Hey, good morning. Uh, so, first of all, uh, I'm the uh, Deputy CIO J6 for the Texas Military Department. The Texas Military Department is a state agency that's made up of the Texas Army and the Air National Guard. Uh, it's comprised of over 23,000 Texans, and our motto is that we are Texans serving Texas. Uh, like all of our federal and state dual missions, we have a bunch of force structure that we train constantly to prepare to defend our nation and, and to protect and, and help our state in times of need. Um, on the cyber front, we have a dual cyber mission uh, to provide the governor and the president with mission-ready cyber forces in support of state and federal authorities. And we do that here at the uh, Joint Force Headquarters by uh, maintaining our interlocks with our state and federal partners. And our state and partners include the governor, Greg Abbott, the Department of Information Resources, Division of Emergency Management, the Department of Public Safety, and uh, partners from industry and academia. Um, we serve on many levels across the state to maintain these interlocks and provide uh, guidance and support to the state. Uh, the Texas Military Department uh, serves on the Texas Cybersecurity Council. Uh, we're members of the State Information Security Advisory Committee and also the Texas Cyber Incident Response Working Group. Wow, I love that. Texans serving Texas. That's great. I, I really appreciate the perspective. And the another guest we have on here is with the U.S. Secret Service. And uh, Mr. D'Ambrosio, I want to head it to you because I think a lot of times when people think of the Secret Service, you know, obviously we think of protecting the president. But cybersecurity is also really important to your mission. So if you could give us a little bit of an overview of what you guys are doing over there and how cybersecurity relates to the mission of the U.S. Secret Service. Yeah, absolutely, Natalia. So as you said, right, most people see the Secret Service for their protective role. It's very high profile. Obviously, we have a campaign coming up, and that's where most people will see the Secret Service. However, we can't we have, hear. We have a very proud history. Can you hear? We have a proud history in investigations. The Secret Service started in 1865, protecting our financial infrastructure, and we continue to do that today. As the financial infrastructure become, has become digitized, Secret Service has evolved. And what we say is our investigations are really related to complex cyber-enabled fraud. We, we view um, cyber as a domain, and we're going to operate and, and conduct fraud investigations within that domain. Wow. And I know that um, some you guys have been kind of doing this over time, and I wanted to give it to you uh, from the Secret Service to discuss a little bit about how the threat has grown over time, particularly in the last 20 years, and how that's changed your approach. So we became involved in cyber as it relates to financial fraud, right? The financial sector, generally speaking, has made significant advancements and has become very dependent upon technology. So our investigations and how we approached investigations had to evolve over time. What I really think has changed over time is sort of the environment, right? Today, there's a very broad attack surface. You have, with the Internet of Things, we, we have become, as a, as a society, uh, integrated with financial technology or with technology as a whole. And so, therefore, we needed to adapt to that. I think the other thing that's changed is we really see a conflation 
of nation states, terrorists, and criminals working together in the cyber domain. And that's how our, our uh, investigations have evolved. That's a really um, interesting point. I think a lot of the motives here have evolved over time as as opposed to being purely financial to now, you know, it's almost like making a statement with cybercrime, which I think we're going to get into a little bit later. But we are actually up against our first break. You guys are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We'll continue our discussion about cybersecurity after a quick word from our sponsors. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are just diving into the landscape of cybersecurity in the U.S. And there have been some pretty high-profile cyber incidences in the last few years. Uh, one that comes to mind is uh, what has been going on in Texas. And so, you know, um, we are happy enough to have the Texas National Guard on with us. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Winnick, if you can speak at all to what happened in the most recent ransomware attack and how you guys have worked on rebuilding following it. Sure. Uh, In August of 2019, the state of Texas conducted a statewide cyber incident response uh, to address a large-scale ransomware attack that affected more than 23 entities across the state. Uh, The National Guard deployed over 50 personnel and uh, seven joint cyber incident response teams uh, to assist the state's response efforts. So the guard teams were able to put boots on the ground in the most impacted locations within uh, 24 hours of notification. And over a period of about nine days, the Texas Guard cyber teams provided on-site cyber incident response to seven different affected municipalities. Um, in that time, the guard team supported the local authorities uh, to conduct assessments to see what damages had been done. Um, we um, took their leadership on what the priorities of restoration would be and began to restore their critical services and established um, pathways for each of these entities to a full recovery. Um, as far as what's being done or what's been going on since, um, it's a really a good news story that you know the success of this mission and being able to get boots on the ground within 24 hours is actually the culmination and result of probably three or four years of planning. Um, I think that you've heard that cyber is a team sport, and that's absolutely the case uh, in Texas. These cyber partnerships that the state National Guard um, established with their state uh, authorities are extremely important um, to ensure that the authorities and the statutes are all in line with quickly deploying uh, the National Guard in an incident response, much like they would respond to any natural or man-made disaster or hurricanes. Um, Texas and Louisiana have recently been in the news because of these cyber incident responses that the National Guard has done. Um, and they've both been very successful. 
Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that those successes come in states that have uh, every year multiple National Guard deployments uh, for their states in response to um, disasters. I really love how you highlighted that this is a team effort and that it's no one entity uh, working on cybersecurity alone. Uh, in fact, I know, Mr. D'Ambrosio, we were talking a little bit about how that law enforcement on the ground is actually in, trained. Some of them are in part by some of the work the U.S. Secret Service is doing. If you want to talk to us a little bit about those training centers. Partnership with the state of Alabama has the uh, National Cyber Forensic Institute. And at that location, we train state and local officers to respond to all kinds of cyber incidents. And I know in the ransomware attack in uh, Louisiana, it was some of our officers that, that were trained at the institute responded uh, to that attack. It's really critical. It's really a uh, to leverage that economy of force where we could train with, with federal knowledge state and local officers to help respond to these types of incidents. Yeah, that's really incredible. I think that national, state, local partnership is really important to the equation that makes responding to these incidences so effective. General Burkett, I'm curious from you about how the national National Guard um, has been able to provide oversight and kind of check on what these groups were doing on the state level and um, if you have any insight onto what that relationship looks like from the National Guard Bureau level. We run a 24-7, basically a, a center here, and we collect information across the 54 states and territories every day. And Sometimes when we have a cyber incident like what we saw in Texas or Louisiana, uh, we're collecting on that information as well and, and reporting up to our, our senior leadership, characterizing the information. We'll convene uh, what we call a cyber threat working group where we bring in experts uh, to, uh, to help examine what's going on and provide the necessary support uh, that a state might require. In many cases, states don't need additional support. Uh, but, but in some cases, they, they might. They might have some, uh, some legal questions that they want to address. Uh, and, and our role here, then, is to also to provide the information up and out. So we work with partners over in the Department of Homeland Security, um, the, the Department of Defense, uh, the Joint Staff. And so sometimes, you know, if, if we have a nation-state actor, for example, that is, uh, that's in our network somewhere causing havoc, um, a state may not be tuned into some of those threat signatures that uh, the federal government might have more situational awareness of. And so we're able to communicate some of that information up and out and, and really let the community of, uh, of partners understand what's going on and also to weigh in on possible solutions. That's a really great point. I think, uh, you know, it's interesting because when I think of these different states, every state almost has a different way of handling these issues. I know uh, Louisiana was their first time ever declaring an, an emergency declaration because of a cyber incident. We talked a little bit about how Texas kind of coordinated these responses. The Secret Service has local individuals on the ground. Uh, for our guest joining us from Maryland, General Flash, I'm curious about how as a state, Maryland has handled uh, cyber incidences. I know that there has been some recent executive orders on uh, from the governor's office on cybersecurity. I'm curious about how 
the Maryland handling of cybersecurity differs from Texas, Louisiana, some of the other states. So, General Flash, if you would like to speak to that. Absolutely. So uh, the governor's executive order established a governor's uh, exec, uh, cybersecurity council um, with which uh, we have representation as, as well as all the other state agencies. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily unique. I think each state uh, has a probably similar structure in, in how it establishes its response capabilities. Um, most importantly, though, uh, and I'm sure we'll see this in other states, we partner with private sector. And unlike most other countries, a large portion of those critical infrastructure are not government-owned. And so to do anything uh, of any value to our citizens requires us to uh, meet with and partner with our, uh, our utility providers, our communications providers, uh, water, energy, and so forth along those sectors. And, and to that and uh, we've created a, um, a structure that works in those specific lines of effort, uh, transportation, election, energy, water, and communications. And what's unique about the Guard, and not just the Maryland Guard, but throughout Guard Nation, is these experts work in these very companies during the week, and they serve in our formations on drill weekends. And so uh, we have a much tighter integration with our private sector partners than any other uniformed service. And that's what makes the Guard uh, the best option to respond, uh, not only in the cyber domain, but in the physical domain as well. And so that's uniquely, I think, how Maryland has approached this, uh, creating those long-term partnerships now. Uh, so we're not trading business cards at the moment we've had a cyber incident. That's Yeah, and if I could just add on to that, Natalia. Um, you know, the, the National Guard, for the listeners that aren't familiar with, with, with how we're organized, we're essentially, uh, generally speaking, a, a force at 70 percent uh, uh, part-time, thirty percent full-time. And so, a, as General Flash was just mentioning, you know, a lot of our citizen soldiers um, are 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 serving on on companies uh, and utilities across our nation, and they also bring expertise from the civilian um, skill sets in, into the military, which is which you cannot quantify how valuable that is when it comes to national security. So I just wanted to emphasize that. And to go back to the point about how the governors have been declaring emergencies with respect to cyber, that's a very important step in a maturation of kind of how we're approaching the problem. A lot of the states are looking at these cyber incidents as a response to a disaster, for example. It's a cyber disaster in this case. And as we, as we formalize and institutionalize how we respond, it's really no different than how we would respond to a natural disaster. And so the states that have really put a lot of thought in how we do this, uh, it's really no different than responding to a hurricane or a tornado. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was reading, uh, you know, getting ready for this show, one of the things that the National Guard Bureau chief had told reporters in August was that you know, he referred to these cybersecurity incidences as cyber storms. He said, we're not quite at a hurricane yet, but these are cyber storms. And I think that comparison between other types of national uh, natural disasters and, you know, how states respond to them is really critical because it is looking at cyber as, you know, a, a serious issue um, and addressing how it impacts people across the state or the nation. And I think that that's really important and it's really cool how states are taking this more seriously. Um, I want to get into a little bit. Hey, Natalia, this is Lieutenant Colonel. 
Colonel Winnick in Texas, uh, just wanted to echo. I, I couldn't agree more with General Burkett's comments. Um, one of the one of the uh, unique things about the Guard is the that we operate under the National Response Framework, and this is a Department of Homeland Security uh, document that establishes how the nation responds to all types of natural or man-made disasters. There is a very mature infrastructure already in place, and the Guard's completely integrated in it. The uh, National Response Framework. Uh, appropriately acknowledges the concept of a tiered response uh, and emphasizes that all responses to incidents should be handled at the lowest jurisdictional level capable of handling the mission. So this is where the Guard is uniquely positioned to provide those enhanced response capabilities for domestic cyber responses across the nation. I mean, we're local, we live and serve here, we have enduring partnerships and trust relationships established and uh, we've established processes and have the supporting statutes that enable the Guard to rapidly deploy in the states. That's a great point. Thank you so much for jumping in there, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Winnick. We are up against our second break, but when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit about the proactive measures that each of our guests have been taking within their localities in order to respond to these incidences. We'll continue our discussion after a quick word from our sponsors. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. I'm here with representatives from the National Guard Bureau, the Texas and Maryland National Guard, and the U.S. Secret Service. We are talking about cybersecurity. And we spent the last segment talking about some of the major cyber incidences that have happened and how states have responded to them and what kind of framework they use for responding to these incidences. Now I want to talk a little bit more about the proactive measures that all these groups have been taking in order to respond to cyber attacks and cyber incidences, but to have as much worked out beforehand so that this is not uh, you know, surprising or shocking. I think um, earlier we had General Burkett talk about how this is three to four years of work being done to ensure that we have the best response when the incidences happen. So I want to dive a little bit more into that, starting uh, with Mr. D'Ambrosio from the Secret Service, talking a little bit about the patterns of criminal activity that have merged and what types of cyber crimes we're noticing more and more. Uh, If you look in that report, what you'll see is about 71 percent 
of all cybercrime is financially motivated. About 30% of it is what we call uh, sort of nation state and possibly hacktivist and um, uh, terrorism uh, associated activity. Right now, the biggest trends that we're seeing is what we call business email compromise schemes. Uh, we've seen a 1,300% increase in losses. Almost, uh, that equates to about uh, $3 billion uh, in wow. today's numbers. And it's really a simple scheme in which they hack into your email account, they send an email, and force a business or organization to send money uh, to, to an account. Um, and if you don't recover that money within about 48 hours, that money is wired outside of the U.S. and it's really gone forever. Uh, the other thing we're seeing, and, and you've already talked about it here with Texas and Louisiana, is ransomware attacks, right? We've seen an increase in ransomware attacks over time. And it's really a very um, sort of, you can buy the exploit uh, on the dark web, so you don't need any expertise in order to conduct the attack. And at times, you know, the average range of the ransom is somewhere around $500 across the board. And it generally targets vulnerable networks. Again, as our society becomes more integrated in technology, there are more networks out there, we become more vulnerable to these types of uh, attacks. We also see uh, network intrusions in the form of e-skimming, unlimited ATM cash-outs. Um, all of these things um, because we have that broad attack service, this is where we're seeing the criminals move. A lot of it is financially motivated, but we also see the conflation, especially in the facilitators of crime, your money launderers, right? Your smugglers, all of these individuals are coming together, uh, in, in this particular area. Yeah. I think just as we are, you know, as our, um, enforcement mechanisms are coming together to try to prevent cyber attacks. We're seeing the bad actors uh, very similarly unite to um, to cause as much damage as possible. I know the National Guard has developed a National Guard cyber strategy in order to bring together resources and have um, you know be able to proactively work on the the cyber incidences. General Burkett, could you explain to us a little bit about what that cyber strategy looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so we we have three core missions in the National Guard. One is to fight America's second one is to secure the homeland, and the third one is ship. So the framework of our cyber strategy for the National Guard is develop and train its force to cyber capability for federal and non-federal missions. Uh, you're cutting out just a little bit there, General Burkett, but we will absolutely come back to that. Um, and I know that the Secret Service has also integrated cybersecurity into their mission. Mr. D'Ambrosio, why don't you talk a little bit about your strategy for handling some of the different types of crimes you were discussing? So Secret Service uh, started in 1995 what we call the Electronic Crimes Task Force, right? And it really is a collaboration between the private sector, academia, and law enforcement to address crimes, right? We learned early on, again, with our um, work in the financial sector, they move very quickly into integrating technology that we needed to work collaboratively in order to address this threat. In After September 11th, uh, with the USA Patriot, we were mandated to institute these electronic crimes task forces throughout the country. Today, we have 38 domestic electronic crimes task forces and two international. And what we do is, again, this is a collaborative effort where we have state and local partners. We have 
um, the private sector organization there. And we also have academics in there working on these new how criminals are utilizing technology and how we can move towards mitigating it. And then the other piece of it, right, is what we want out of this sharing of information is to be able to identify, investigate, and prosecute these cyber criminals, right? We talk a lot about here being able to mitigate and respond to these things and mitigate the impact of these threats, and that's extremely important, right? But we also have to understand that in, the, in this domain, these are criminals. And in order to stop it, we have to create a deterrent factor. And the only way to do that is to be able to identify, investigate, and prosecute these individuals. Uh, yeah, that's a really great point. Oh, uh, yeah, this is Lieutenant Colonel Winnick. If I could... Yeah, absolutely. Jump on in. Uh, so I think that's a great point. Um, this is the the incidents that we've responded to. We've had uh, different uh, partners uh, involved with the federal side of things. But the thing that, to remember is, you know, a cyber incident is a lot like a fire. When your house is burning and it's your house and you're standing there and you call the fire department, you're not necessarily at that point concerned about the uh, the cause of the fire, who did it. Uh, you're more concerned about your critical infrastructure getting restored and getting uh, everything back in working order so you can return to normalcy. That doesn't mean that the criminal investigation is not absolutely uh, important and the forensics and the evidence needs to be collected. So the one thing good about the uh, federal and uh, state partners working together is you can have the criminal investigation partners focusing on the criminal investigation and the boots on the ground from the National Guard, focusing on the incident response and getting the uh, local authorities a clear path to recovery and focusing on that side of the, uh, of the incident response. Uh, and then all the collection of information um, from the people on the ground is being pushed up to the federal partners and the investigative team, and they can continue that investigation, which will likely lead longer than um, any response mission will. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. It's almost like you have the investigators and the federal level and the background, you know, making sure how did this happen and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? And then we have the individual National Guard bureaus on the state and local level who are able to respond immediately and ensure that the people who are being impacted have some resolve. Uh, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier, Lieutenant Colonel Winnick, was the importance of restoring critical services um, and critical infrastructure. And I'm curious about how you guys do that. Um, and this, you know, it might be for you. It might be more of a question for General Burkett. But I, I want you guys to talk a little bit about what restoring that critical infrastructure looks like, and how do you, you know, restore it so that sure. it's not susceptible to attack. Yes, I, um, so basically, the first thing that we have to do when the uh, National Guard is called, uh, we are there as the state's agents. We're the boots on the ground. Uh, we provide the, the capacity for the state to get um, boots on the ground across. The state of Texas, which is very large, with over 254 counties and 1,700 municipalities, um, when we get there, the first order of business is to quickly do an assessment with the local authorities to identify what has occurred and how many systems are damaged and what critical services are down. We then take their uh, leadership in deciding what their priorities are um, on what needs to be restored first um, to get them back uh, to operational. 
Uh, we communicate that up to the state operations center where our state partners, the Department of Information Resources, and the governor are monitoring the, with the Division of Information Management, and they are prioritizing resources based on what our assessments are um, to get us the resources we need uh, to get their critical uh, services restored. I think every state and every mission is going to be unique in this aspect. The scale of the mission that we had in August with over 23 entities being affected um, uh, required the state to make decisions on the level of critical services uh, that would be restored before they would turn it over to the local authorities to finish out the restoration. Um, about 30 days prior uh, to the August incident, we had another ransomware attack in Jackson County um, where all of their critical services were down. Uh, it was a small-scale incident, and we were able to have uh, about eight personnel on the ground for 15 days where we were able to restore all of their critical services and uh, rebuild their network, um, get users back online with updated systems, set up uh, enumerated network with the latest security patches, and develop a clear path ahead for improved cybersecurity practices. So that's one example of a smaller scale incident where we were able to do a lot more and bring their services up to a higher level. But I think each uh, state has to determine what that uh, threshold is based on the scale and the resources available. That's really interesting. And I think the example you gave really illustrates um, how these you know, entities work together to restore and make better um, their cybersecurity in the state. Um, I'm curious, General Flash, uh, what are some of the cybersecurity capabilities that Maryland brings to the table uh, in terms of state, national, international support to DOD and other partners, and how are you guys working to advance some of those capabilities? So we have uh, a 175th Cyber Operations Group, which is a Maryland Air National Guard unit. We also have the 169th Cyber Protection Team, and they work closely with our state partners and our international partners through state partnership program as well as deployments to further the cyber defense. That's really interesting. Um, and I know that one of the things that's been on Maryland's mind, Texas's mind, I think is everyone in this room has thought a little bit about going into 2020 and election security. Uh, General Burkett, could you maybe just run us through some of the top concerns in terms of election security uh, going into this major election? Well, I think the top concerns are will be here with, with the rest of the federal government in that, uh, you know, a nation state wants to interfere with the U.S. election, then, um, you know, that could be problematic to the, the foundations of our democracy. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a little bit concerning to all of us when we look back and we see some of the issues that we ran into in 2016, making sure that 2020 is as secure as possible. What type of activities, General Flash, is Maryland currently involved in uh, in terms of state elections to make sure that your elections are as secure as possible from a possible cyber attack? So we work closely with our state board of elections as they work with Department of Homeland Security. And together, we attempt to ensure that they've got an end-to-end -end security plan that protects our our election process and ensures a fair and uh, transparent process for our citizens. That's great. And I'm curious if the Secret Service has focused at all on election security moving forward. 
So we don't really get involved in the particular ballot or election security. What we do is if a candidate uh, picks up uh, protection from the Secret Service, then we'll work with them to essentially secure themselves and give them uh, cyber hygiene, if you will, so they're not victims of, of cyber crime, right? Now, we do work. We will take uh, over some cybersecurity as you're talking to national special security events where we're looking at how physical security is integrated with um, cybersecurity. Yeah, and speaking of um, national events, um, I know that the Secret Service worked really closely with some global networks during the UN General Assembly. And, you know, speaking of these big key players in the international community and how cybersecurity matters to them, I think it would be really interesting for if you could talk, Mr. D'Ambrosio, about how the U.S. Secret Service worked ahead of the U.N. General Assembly to prepare us for any potential attacks. Sure. So this is uh, United Nations General Assembly. Uh, we just passed, I think it was number 74. So this is uh, pretty routine for the Secret Service uh, to do this every single fall. And again, as uh, technology has evolved, the Secret Service, even on our protection side of the house, had to evolve as well. We have what's called critical systems protection. It's a section within the Office of Investigations, that goes out and does advances no different than we would a physical advance. However, what we're really looking at now is the networks of the different sites that we go to. So whether it be some of the big hotels where they're staying, whether it be some of the major events or the United Nations, we take a look at how the power company and the power grids are integrated and how a cyber disruption could affect the physical part of that uh, protected. And so we do that throughout the, uh, for the UN, and then we'll continue to do that throughout the campaign. I really like how you've discussed a few times, and I think this example really illustrates how cybersecurity is, you know, it's part of regular security now. It's not, I feel like maybe a couple of years ago, it was a little bit more of a foreign concept, but now it's, you know, reinforcing cybersecurity strength is part of the regular mission that you guys have integrated into your into your U.S. Secret Service overall mission, um, and it's really become just part of the process. And that was something that a couple weeks ago when uh, my colleague Jason did the discussion with the private sector on cybersecurity, they were noting how important that is and how, you know, you can't look at cybersecurity as something very different and off base from regular security, but it needs to be integrated into every part of the mission uh, so that we know that we are as on top of it as possible. We are heading up against our last break. So we are going to stop here from for a word from your, our sponsors. And when we return, we will wrap up this discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com.
Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show. This has been really interesting. We've been talking uh, with some government officials on how their agencies work to protect us from cyber attacks, respond to cyber attacks, and make sure that the country is in the best place possible um, when going into these incidences. We have been dis- we have been on the line with Brigadier General Jeffrey Burkett from the National Guard Bureau. Brigadier General Adam Flash from the Maryland National Guard, Lieutenant Colonel Christopher Winnick from the Texas National Guard, and Michael D'Ambrosio from the U.S. Secret Service. And uh, we've talked a lot, I think, conceptually about um, the proactive measures that all of our groups are taking in order to have the best response possible. But I want to talk a little bit about putting it into practice. Uh, General Burkett, I know the National Guard focuses on what they call a whole-of-government approach. I think we've alluded to it a little bit, but uh, if you want to talk a little bit about what that actually looks like. Yeah, so when we talk about whole-of-government approach, from a national guard perspective, we're talking about just connecting and really networking with all of our partners out there, and then and then and filtering information back and forth, up and down, left and right, and and then of course supporting uh, national guard units that are out there in states, territories, doing the mission, supporting them with whether it's exercises, training, organization. Uh, we've actually spearheaded over the last year and a half a legal force cyber law uh, so we have uh, expertise out there with our, our attorneys and our JAGs to be able to work with their state counterparts develop the MOUs or agreements and help build out that uh, response infrastructure in those states so it's legally sound at the state level and also federal uh, restrictions and, and yeah, and I know you guys have also focused on uh, create. Well, I think it's been around for a couple of years now, but the Cyber Shield program. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and what that program looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, Cyber Shield is an annual Army National Guard exercise designed to assess cyber warriors on response plans to cyber incidents. And this year was our eighth year in conducting this. Uh, it involved the Army National Guard, Air National Guard, uh, the Reserve, private sector, federal, state officials, industry, and academia. And it uh, basically a very large collection that uh, had about 800 soldiers in state from 40 states and territories. And so it was, it was, a, it was a tremendous effort, uh, very, very good effort for us because not only were we working with our partners throughout the interim, and industry, um, what we're building our self helps us perform our federal war fight mission. So it's really a win-win for all of us. Yeah, I think that's really great. It sounds like it's a really great program. You're getting a lot of people at the table to discuss these issues. The fact that, you know, specifically that you guys have people from every state and territory, it, it, and I think it sends the message that this is a whole of government, a united conversation. It's something we all need to be on top of. I think that's been a theme throughout this show, and I think it's very evident in the work that you guys are doing. It reminds me of the Secret Service Task Force that we had discussed a little bit earlier. You know, I, I know that you guys work together with the local law enforcement over at the Secret Service uh, to make sure that they're 
as equipped as possible to handle these incidences. I'm a little curious about how um, that not you don't just talk before the incident, but even after an incident happens and how you keep that line of communication open so that that local law enforcement that you guys train know that uh, the communication pathways are still open. Um, I'm curious about how you guys foster that communication across levels. Listen, I really think, right, when you look at, uh, as, as we talk about this from a cyber crime perspective, right, what, what our electronic crimes task forces are established to do is they're built on the understanding that we want to build trust with our state and local law enforcement partners. We want to build trust with private organizations and even academia, right? And the reason to build that trust, right, is at the, at the end of a cyber crime, you have a victim. That victim has to trust law enforcement, right, the private sector organization, to come in and share information, right? So we really want sort of this extreme sharing of information between a community of trusted partnerships that we then can go out and use that information, right, to operationalize that information to go after and, again, go after the bad guys, right? Part of the way you do that, and we and we talk about that, this is you want to – get together prior to an incident. You have to build that trust before an incident. If the incident occurs and the first time you're meeting somebody, you're not going to trust that individual to share sort of your closest secrets. One of the things that the service has has established now is what's called our National Cyber Incident Response Seminar, right? And it's really bringing together in sort of a tabletop type of exercise where we bring in about 60 private sector partners. We put law enforcement in there. We also put in some of the information sharing organizations that are out there. And we discuss not just the sharing of information, right, but the how we share, the where we share that information, the why we share that information, right, to take a very proactive response to how we're doing it. One of the things that you have to do is you have to prepare before there's a cyber incident. You have to make yourself a harder target um, as you're going out there. And that's what our ECTFs do is they really take a whole of entity approach to this, where we work with individuals to prepare them for the attack. We work during the attack with our sectors to mitigate the attack. And then we work after the attack to go after the criminals that, that perpetrated the attack. I think that's um, I, I, that's really important. Everything you said is really on point there. Uh, you know, particularly with they need to feel supported all the way through, uh, before, during, and after. And I, I think that's great. Um, General Flash, you talked a little bit earlier about how the executive order triggered the creation of the Cybersecurity Council, where you, the National Maryland National Guard, and some other groups are all coming together. Um, I'm curious about how that's gone so far. I know it's still relatively new, but um, have you seen the, you know, increase in shared information, in discussion and communication among these groups yet? Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's brought us into a closer understanding of the possible impacts of the criminal act within a cyber attack. It's also important for the Guard, while we attempt to do restoration, that we work closely with our fusion centers for our state police, FBI, Secret Service, to ensure that as we're making restoration efforts, we don't inadvertently step into a crime scene and make it harder for our law enforcement team to do their job. And so that has been a great outcome of this cybersecurity council is to understand the entire environment that we have to operate in. 
Yeah, I think a lot of these issues bleed through all layers of government. And so the fact that so many states, the Secret Service, the National Guard Bureau, are working to make it a more integrated conversation is really important, and it sets us up for success. We're entering the last five minutes of the show, and I want to go around and give all the guests kind of an opportunity to give their final thoughts on what's on the horizon. Uh, you know, I, I, this show has given me a lot of optimism about the way that we're working together and making things happen on the cybersecurity front. So uh, I think let's do final thoughts. Uh, Mr. Ambrosio, I'll let you start. No, listen, you know, I think we've learned a lot over the years as we sort of encountered this. And so initially with law enforcement, as we as we sort of went into these particular crimes, we were primarily focused on the arrest and the investigation piece. And as my counterparts from the Guard said, there's another piece to this, right? So law enforcement has evolved over time to understand that private sector organizations have a role, right? And, and their role is to get back to business, especially critical infrastructure. And so I think some of the information sharing networks, some of the collaboration between DHS, the way we're handling now some of the ransomware, I think the National Guard has an important role to play in the response and the mitigation, allowing law enforcement to do their, to do their job. I don't see this threat ending. I think as uh, society becomes more and more integrated with technology, right, we're going to have to learn to live with this uh, within this environment and adapt to, to, to working in this area. Absolutely. I think it's, you know, we only have more to focus on moving forward. Lieutenant Colonel Winnick, why don't you give us some final thoughts from Texas? Well, I, I really appreciate my colleague from the Secret Service's comment. Um, I think that goes along with some of our key takeaways from the last few incidents. As I mentioned before, uh, the incidents were successful in Texas uh, because we had those pre-existing relationships, those trust relationships that have been mentioned before. Uh, those, those start at you know, weekly meetings, planning coordination meetings, attending each other's cyber training events. I know the Texas legislature and our governor has been very proactive in legislation to uh, focus on cyber training, but there's a significant gap in Texas and probably across our country in the lower resourced uh, rural counties and municipalities, these entities do not have the resources to make themselves a hard target. They don't have the budget or they don't have the uh, personnel or talent. And that gap uh, is where I believe that the National Guard is going to maintain a presence. Um, people that have resources don't call the state and ask for help if they have a problem. It's the areas that don't have resources that have nowhere else to turn that have exhausted all of their local um, resources uh, that need help. And when those calls come in to the governor, he calls the National Guard. We partner with our state agencies. We put boots on the ground. Uh, the key takeaway is that available guard force structure in the states equals a state's incident response capacity. And we have to remember these, these are dual missioned cyber units. So these uh, cyber units could be on a federal mission at any given time uh, on a rotational basis and may not be available when the next uh, big cyber event comes. So I, I know in Texas our Adjutant General is fully supportive of the National Guard cyber strategy to get additional cyber force structure in the states so that we can continue to provide uh, responses and protect our state's critical infrastructure in the future. That's a great point. We're in the last uh, couple, mi the last minute here. Uh, any final words from General Burkett and General Flash? Yeah, again, thanks for having us on TED Talk today. 
get the opportunity to talk about the National Guard and what we're doing. I'm really excited and optimistic about the future. I think all the information that, that was really on point. The National Guard will continue to better organize. Uh, we attack this problem at the state level and at the, at the federal level. So one of the greatest things about the National Guard that, that I love a lot of talent into the National because we have private sector citizen soldiers and airmen that work in these mission sets, whether utilities, electric, or high-end uh, computer companies, that they bring their talent to the table, and that's the, that's not enough of that. Um, but moving forward, we're going to continue to and look for ways that we can develop for everybody up and down uh, and across the uh, the. Yeah, I and can't the National wait Guard to... motto is there, and that's what we're going to strive to continue. Absolutely. Thank you so much, General Burkett. I appreciate that so much. Um, the National Guard has been a really great help, and I'm excited to continue to follow the work that we do. We have to cut out now, but I want to thank everyone for joining us, our guests, and everyone at home. Vet Talk is brought to you by the federal employment law firm Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend, everyone. In Kurdish forces, the shelling and fighting has not stopped. A lot of celebration in the United States about this so-called ceasefire here, but the reality is that the fighting does continue. It's it's kind of focused on Ras Alain, which is a town right on the border, strategically important. And Kurdish fighters say that essentially uh, the Turkish bombardment never ended, and so their fighters will not leave. It's been focused, uh, we understand, on a hospital that has been uh, repeatedly bombarded, uh, wounded inside, are uh, unable to leave. ABC's James Longman in northern Iraq. Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney is trying to walk back comments he made when he acknowledged there was a quid pro quo with Ukraine. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says the media should take Mulvaney's revisions at face value. Mick was very clear in... um cleaning up his statement. More from ABC's Karen Travers. Here's Mulvaney responding to a question about the connection between U.S. aid to Ukraine and an investigation into the DNC server from 2016. I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. Hours later, Mulvaney issued a statement, not saying he misspoke, but that the media misconstrued his comments, which were on camera. Karen Travers, ABC News, the White House.